Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Since this is my first outing with this podcast, I figured that I would open with something appropriate to the atmosphere, and something I've been spending a lot of time with recently. For this project, I've found myself leaning on my own personal methods of research for this endeavor. By this, I mean that when I was in university, this was my method for justifying wanting to read about something specific from the library. I would then shoehorn it into a paper that I could mostly link to a relevant topic, with varied results. For once, I'm kind of working a backwards version of this method by going with something I was already pretty engrossed in, and deciding that this was going to be my jumping off point. All of that established, I can't deny that I really can't think of a better place to start discussing weird worlds and the lore within it. Let's get comfy, pull up a book or two, because we're heading off to the weird world of H.P. Lovecraft's Miskatonic University. You might never have read a single one of Lovecraft's stories, but chances are you're more than a little familiar with his world. He is the one who brought us the Cthulhu mythos, and a lot of the popular fictions that deal with cosmic horrors and ambivalent or even occasionally malicious elder gods. He's told us tales of places like the lost city of Raleigh, however you say that, or the sinister and barren Innsmouth. His influence on modern horror and science fiction are undeniable with countless authors tackling his mythologies and films taking everything from direct plot lines to inspiration from his ideas and expanding on them to create whole new sprawling horrors. There is a wealth of material on Lovecraft's work, both in the form of praise and critical attention drawn to his overt bigotry. But to start off our journey, I'm focusing on something rather small but more important than it might seem. The university, and more importantly, the library, play a rather specific role, not just in the mythos, but also in the worldview of Lovecraft. Before getting into that, however, we might understand Miskatonic better if we know the man who created it. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was an American writer from Providence, Rhode Island, beginning his career in 1912, writing letters to the editor and poems for local newspapers and magazines. His career would span the rest of his life until his death from cancer in 1937 at the age of 46. From a young age, Lovecraft was encouraged in more literary and scholarly pursuits. He was born into a more affluent family, but after the death of his father, his family, and afterwards he, continued to have a lot of financial struggles for the rest of his life. 
He showed a great interest in the sciences, even publishing his own magazines on subjects like chemistry. That said, his interest didn't quite match his ability when it came to his schooling life, as he is reported to have had a very poor aptitude for math. Despite his enjoyment of school, Lovecraft's health was always an issue, and the eventual outcome of this was that he was never actually able to finish high school, never mind attend college. There is much more to the author's story than this, and if you are interested in getting the basics, there is an excellent introduction done by Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube. The link can be found in the show notes, and I highly recommend it to get a more in-depth introduction to his stories if you're unfamiliar. What concerns us for this topic is less the nitty-gritty of Lovecraft's life, and more of his interests specifically the value of the scholar and what it signified in his time. Considering that he was basically a shut-in who preferred books to people for the most part, the life of an academic would have been a particularly attractive one, even if it didn't include the prestige behind it. And make no mistake, there was indeed prestige attached to being a learned man. While Lovecraft himself wasn't able to achieve any academic success in his lifetime, Given his upbringing and the general environment of most universities, it was easy for him to project himself in the role of the scholar. Historically, post-secondary education was granted a bit differently, and though there were women admitted into the hallowed halls before this, we have to focus on the fact that Miskatonic was meant to be an Ivy League school. What we learn from Tyler Kincaid of the Huffington Post was that this was an environment that was particularly slow to change their ways when it came to who was welcome in their schools. To quote Tyler Kincaid, In the 1920s, many colleges were still segregated by gender. Some schools, like American, Cornell, Penn, Iowa, Oberlin, and Bates, became or were founded as co-educational in the 19th century. But the Ivy League schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, and others didn't integrate the sexes until the 1960s or 70s. These days, we gauge the difficulty of getting into specific schools by the rigid testing systems, the level of our grades, how involved in the community we have been, and, let's be honest, money available to us to get into those schools. For as rigorous as it is to get into schools like Harvard or another equally elite school now, back in the day, getting in might have been even harder, or much easier, depending on who you were. In Lovecraft's time, Harvard specifically had a rather easy speed bump to clear, provided you fit into a certain category, as demonstrated by this slice of history from The Atlantic. Annika Niklassen wrote, the graduating class consisted of just nine students, no women, no people of color, only, in the words of a Boston historian, young men of good hope. The order in which they received their degrees was determined not according to age or scholarship, but according to the rank their families held in society. While the mark of class division is still very much a part of academia, in modern times we take for granted the role that wealth and heritage 
played in scholarly society back in the day. Family lines, particularly wealthy and powerful ones, were a large part of who made up the graduating classes from these institutions. More than any bumper sticker now, being a college student for a particular school was a source of pride and a signal of the power of one's place in society. All these things would have played entirely into the most important parts of Lovecraft's world. From what we know of Lovecraft's values, one of the things that he held in very high regard was his heritage, in that his father's family came from an English background, and both father and son were extremely proud of their Anglo-Saxon roots. In fact, from a young age, Lovecraft's paternal family very much pushed the idea of protecting their heritage from becoming too American. Lovecraft's scholar, S.T. Joshi, reported that the Lovecraft line made some effort to keep from becoming nasally Yankeeized. And his father had gone so far as to even cultivate a British accent, despite the man having been born in New York. This was something that young Howard Phillips took quite to heart, and along with solidifying his racism and classist attitudes towards anyone who wasn't white, his biases lent themselves well to the worship of the idea of the cultured, educated man, because it reinforced everything that mattered the most to him. Now that we understand what Lovecraft's values were, and how the world of the academic fits into them, there is an added layer that goes beyond the societal trappings of wealth and status that we should address as well. Lovecraft put his faith in science where it lacked in any kind of god, and that is something else that the scholarly world would have been able to foster, especially when it came to the burgeoning areas of study that would have been coming into their own during his lifetime. There was a lot to say about the world of scientific development throughout the first two decades of the 20th century, but that alone made it a very remarkable period of change. As anyone who has lived through periods of rapid or fast changes knows, this can be intimidating when the world that you recognize becomes so much bigger and more unstable than you counted on. When it comes to Miskatonic, it might go some ways to explaining both the allure and the threat that the university posed in his tales. Whereas science to Lovecraft might have been something he put more faith in than God, that didn't always mean that he trusted it, nor that his faith was something he took a great deal of comfort in. In fact, it might have been a driving force in his own nihilistic worldview that made its way into his famous stories. Wes House for Lit Hub wrote, In 1927, Lovecraft's often quoted take on cosmic horror appeared in Weird Tales. Now, all my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. One must forget that such things as organic life, good and evil, love and hate, and all such attributes of a negligible and temporary race called mankind have any existence at all. Aside from proving that Lovecraft was likely not very popular at cocktail parties, this slightly dour quote gives us a good glimpse of the dichotomy he created for his scholarly narrators and the worlds that they found themselves in. On the one hand, 
we have this very blunt, clinical idea of the world and beyond, completely divorced from any emotional or spiritual understandings of it. This plays a huge role in the Cthulhu mythos, as most of these gods are void of any sense of sentimentality or even empathy towards mankind. This goes beyond the basic nihilistic idea of human beings are pointless garbage, however, and gives us a view of people, the world, and even space that is devoid of biases that are based in morality of the day and religious dogma. Stripping it right back to the idea of organic life in the quote also removes human beings as having dominion over the world and its creatures. That said, before we go too far into this, we have to remember that for as much as his view idealistically removes the dogmatic principles of the sacredness and sanctity of life, his own biases were well on display through how his stories were told, specifically through the narrator. For the most part, the lens through which we view Lovecraft's tales are all from the perspective of the men who would have been part of that privileged scholarly world. It's also their approved point of view that is used to lend credibility to what they are supposed to be witnessing. This works well for his stories because it gives the fantastic elements a grounding in something more concrete and lends it an air of gravitas that the audience wouldn't necessarily get if it was coming from a truck driver or a shop clerk. That's not to say that important information doesn't come from other sources, and some of those sources are certainly not from upstanding scholarly men. That said, those educated main characters, and by extension, the audience, are allowed to dismiss these lowly side characters and question their accounts precisely because they aren't learned white men of good breeding. Now we should be clear that Lovecraft hardly invented the idea of the prestigious narrator. The whole deal about scholarly writing is that we are supposed to back up what we say by turning to those sources that we have put our faith in, specifically our academic faith. We rely on the scholarship of those who came before us, and we believe them because of their academic background. We're getting a little meta here, as even this podcast is going to be using those academic sources where I can find them in the future. But the difference is that while I am well aware that I'm joking about my role as an armchair scholar, Lovecraft's use of a scholarly protagonist definitely is not. And from here, we can finally make our way to the hallowed halls of Miskatonic. The name sounds sinister on its own. Miskatonic is, according to Lovecraft, a jumble of Algonquin words that he mashed together. This fictional school was said to be highly prestigious, one of his famous alumni being none other than Herbert West. If that name rings any bells, but you can't quite remember where you heard it, you're going to want to put a pin in this part, because it factors heavily into what makes Miskatonic so alluring and terrifying. In the creation of this university, Lovecraft didn't just give it a weird name and a notable and strange alumni. If you read the stories or look up the Wikipedia page for the school, you'll note that he made a point to fill out the campus as more than just a footnote location. He gave the school a staff and a backstory. He returned to this university multiple times over several stories involving a variety of those staff members from different disciplines. 
Considering Lovecraft's background and his admiration of academic life for what it represented, why bother making up a university when he had plenty of prestige schools to choose from? After all, there are plenty of stories that use a Harvard-accepted student or the alumni of an Ivy League school as shorthand for why these characters are a big deal. What's more, you have a kind of built-in understanding of what that character is supposed to represent. You don't have to explain someone's pedigree if you introduce a character as graduating top of their class from Yale. If you even mention Harvard is the school that they've been accepted to, there is an immediate signal to the audience of what kind of person you're introducing them to. There's no such connection to fictional schools normally. It might be complicated to answer this, but to start, let's go back to Herbert West. For those who aren't in the know, Herbert West Reanimator is the serialized tale of the title character and his attempts to dip his hand in the art of necromancy by way of science. According to Lovecraft's letters, this story was meant to be a parody of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and it was a part of his catalogue that he was not overly impressed with. While it is said by many to be among Lovecraft's lesser works, it does give us two things to keep in mind. First and foremost, this was the first place that we got our introduction to Miskatonic University. The fact that we got our first look at the place through the antics and downfall of the mad Dr. West is also of some note and brings us to our second point. Though it was taking a significant amount of the plot and ideas from Mary Shelley's masterwork, it's not like Lovecraft's own original works didn't fit right in with the moral of Frankenstein. If we want to get technical, that very moral, that the pursuit of the unknown spells the downfall of mankind, encompasses a great deal of his own body of work. Stories like The Shadow Over Innsmouth, Cool Air, The Call of Cthulhu, or The Picture in the House are just a few of the many examples of how the author draws the horror of his stories out of intellectual curiosity or the act of engaging with forbidden knowledge. This presents a strange dichotomy for us as we delve further into this topic. On the one hand, Lovecraft's stories prioritize the view of the educated white man leaning on this very specific background to create a narrative that he personally approved of and held in high regard. On the other hand, on full display were his fears of those things that were foreign to him and the differences that came from a changing world around him. If we look at the shadow over Innsmouth, it's a perfect example of this clash. The narrator, Robert Olmsted, is a student who is taking time between semesters to do genealogy work on his family tree. When he comes across the tales of Innsmouth, he allows his curiosity to lead him into digging into some of the background of the place. When he arrives at the town proper, he is compelled to locate the town drunk and ply him with alcohol to figure out what's going on with this weird little town. And much like all the rest of Lovecraft's main characters, curiosity is something that Robert pays dearly for in the end. This schism between the intellectual pursuit of knowledge and the punishment that greets those who dabble with information best left alone isn't present in all his works, but it is something that is rather prominent. What we can posit from this was that for all his love for and fascination with science and the developments that it facilitated, 
These changes that it brought about to the world around him were utterly terrifying. The duality of Lovecraft's fears and values was best summed up by Westhouse when he wrote that he was both an active product of his time as well as an elaborator of specific historical fears about the decline of the West. When we take all of these elements into account, it's no wonder that Miskatonic loomed so large in his work. The university as an institution represented everything that Lovecraft admired, but was quickly producing many things he feared in the real world. And here's where we get our answer as to what it was that led Lovecraft to create such a place as this strange and enduring university. What Miskatonic gives to us is the dichotomy that couldn't be attached to a real institution in a way that would stick. It's true that one could make any institution seem a little sinister by setting a story there, but the difference is that eventually that shadow would fade. You're never going to truly strip Harvard of its luster, and the legacy of a place like Yale is going to overshadow any one fictional story set there. The fear that even a set of stories created would never stay in the way Lovecraft would have wanted or felt. In this, Miskatonic is free to be the perfect symbol of something desirable and admirable, but also something dangerous that could potentially bring about the end of everything we know and care about. This is exactly the reason that it houses the biggest threat in the world, the Necronomicon. Ultimately, this one book is the heart of the dueling sides of the university itself and of Lovecraft. It's not an accident that the book was supposedly written by what Lovecraft titled The Mad Arab, for it was a grimoire that held the power to bring forth the Old Ones and end life on Earth with their eventual resurrection and rise. And the power to bring about the destruction of all life on Earth was buried in the Special Collections Library of Miskatonic University, a school that, for the most part, was entirely like any other Ivy League school. This institution was a place that upheld the ideals of those young men of good hope, and the power and wealth behind them to continue to hold their coveted positions in society. This was also the ideal place for just the right curious student or professor to find the key to our undoing and the complete destruction of that society that Lovecraft held so dear. And in a place where great minds are capable of so many things, there's also the inherent danger that lurking somewhere in those halls, there is someone who will use their intellect to bring down all of humanity itself through their dangerous and careless ideas. This was the terror that progress held, especially for a man who was seeing the world change around him and was horrified by it. Academia has seen its changes and shifts to accommodate the role it plays in the world. That said, for all its attempts to adapt in a new and rapidly changing world, there are some things that we can still relate to today when it comes to the fears that come from intellect used poorly. While Lovecraft's fears were born of classist and racist ideas, the wider world could agree. The world became a lot scarier when our knowledge base expanded to include things such as nuclear fusion and chemical and biological warfare. There is no such thing as a Necronomicon, 
but there are other horrible books that have come into existence since Lovecraft's time, that have helped fuel falsehoods, have justified atrocities, and have even convinced people to work against their own interest. That said, the world of the university is not simply a cradle for horrible ideas and forbidden knowledge. Anyone who's been there knows that it's a place to challenge ideas that have been put in place before. The role of the academic is not simply to adhere to what has been, but to question it and test for its veracity. It examines the past and it pushes for evidence of what we used to believe and what we think we know now. And this dual nature is why Miskatonic and its library, for all its mystery and power and terrifying consequences, still resonates with us now. And this, dear listener, brings us to the end of the Armchair Scholar's Guide to Miskatonic. This was just a small sampling of what's to come, and I may come back to some of the things that we've talked about in this introductory episode later. But until then, if anything to do with this topic has been of interest to you, links can be found in the description, and a full list will be available on my website at SinisterGardenLegacy.com, under the heading Litanies. There you will find all the relevant citations for the show, and links will be provided for any online sources you would like to read. For those of you who might wish to read the transcript, it will be available at the $2 tier on my Patreon. Since this is more of a half episode to start us off, I've just included the links this time, but for the following episodes, show notes will be annotated and have some extra resources for anyone who might be curious about something and wanting to know more. And with that, thank you to everyone who's taken the time to sit with me. I invite you to return next month when our theme will take a sinister turn into some strange makeup and gallows humor. Until then, keep studying, and wherever possible, let your curiosity be your guide.